The readings for this morning are from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, and 26 to 28, and also Psalm 82. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word of the Lord. Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, offspring of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like mortals, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. 
But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's good to be back. Uh, I'm grateful for the focus time that I had with Astrid. I'll miss the routine that we had so enjoyed for that brief season. But it's good to return in the work in our midst and in the ministry. Glad to be back. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now for your power in our lives, not so to abuse it or to lord it over others, but so to use it for the laying down of our lives according to the pattern of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We come to a new teaching series for this summer season. It's called, Who Are You, God? It's on the names of God. If you've ever read through the entire Bible, there's so many different ways to refer to God, so many different names. So what, what's, what's in a name? That's what Shakespeare wrote hundreds of years ago. What's in a name? We can think of a name as a bag into which you pack in identity, character, history, uh, distinctiveness, and a bunch of other qualities and traits. And just like how a suitcase makes it easier to carry a whole lot of things as just one thing, a name makes it easier to refer to someone uh, or to something. Okay, so God. God is too big of a being to just have one name. We can't pack everything about God into just one bag or into one suitcase, into just one name. So God has a lot of other names or a lot of other suitcases. So carrying that analogy along in the Bible God himself, himself doesn't pack any, many of his own suitcases, as it were. A few people in history ended up packing bags for God. That is, certain people gave names to God. See, there's only a handful, a handful of times in the Bible that God names himself. But most of the time, people gave the names to God as people met him, as people got to know God through the course of their lives. Today we're looking at one of those names, the name Elohim. The name Elohim. We'll be unpacking arguably this oldest suitcase we have of God. It's the oldest reference to God. In our reading from Genesis, uh, the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, Elohim. Elohim is derived from a few lineages of ancient Near Eastern languages, so the word remains controversial and mysterious to track and translate. But at its root, basically, Elohim means the powers, like Austin powers. See, the word is plural, it's not singular. But the strangest way it occurs in the Bible is that Elohim, again, it's a plural word, it's sometimes associated with singular verbs in reference to God, which is grammatically incorrect. Now, Christians later on in centuries 
later took this to be like hinting at this proto-theology about the Trinity in the Old Testament, but that's also debated. Now, needless to say, Elohim is hard to translate because it's so broad and so imprecise that it's also used to refer to people, uh, to idols, to gods, uh, spirits, and angels. Okay, so what do we find in the oldest name of God? What's useful for our reflections inside this ancient bag, suitcase? Now, we'll just focus on one aspect of the name. And that is in regards to God being judge and ruler. Elohim at least means that God is judge and ruler. That's what we'll just be focusing on today. So we see this immediately developing in the first chapter of Genesis. See, God is ruler. He manifests his powers by bringing everything to being and to order, exerting his rule over darkness, over chaos, over the void, and then over what he made. That's ruler. And then we see judge Elohim. He's being judged here. How does he do that? He makes distinctions. He makes distinctions and divides light from darkness, heaven from earth, lesser from the greater lights, land from sea, from air, spirit and flesh, animal from human. This is him being judge, makes distinctions. So Genesis 1 at the get-go portrays Elohim, the powers, exerting his powers as judge, ruler over the cosmos. That's the stage we're set. Now the culmination of this drama of power is when Elohim imparts to humanity his Tselem Elohim. Tselem Elohim, that's Hebrew for image of God. Tselem Elohim. Tselem in its root means to carve or to cut like you would a stone sculpture or a marble piece. It can mean idol or shadow, the idol or shadow of God, humanity. This is the idol of God on earth. It's a representation of Elohim that you can see. There's contours, there's shape. You can smell him and her. You can touch him and her. So suddenly we see Elohim impart his powers the powers imparting his powers beyond himself. Now there's an extension of his rule. There's an extension of his judgment. It's like a shadow that extends when the sun sets or rises, right? Now there is someone other than Elohim to represent him in and over all creation. So as the narrative continues, what follows afterwards makes sense. See, Elohim then commissions, sends out Adam and Eve, spread over the earth, subdue, take dominion of it, be rulers and judges of the earth. And you know what happens uh, immediately after that? That's what Adam does exactly. He gives names, makes distinctions to the animals, packs them their suitcases, their bags, if you will. Adam steps into being judge. Steps into being ruler of creation, living out his Salem Elohim. This is the first stage, the first act, the set of the drama of power to unfold in creation. As we all know in history, the drama digressed from its intended script, and we still see it digressing even now. Whenever we mention power, we immediately associate it with corruption, oppression, injustice, 
abuse. It's what we have ever known of power since the start. Now this is where we move on to our second reading into Psalm 82. Psalm 82. It's a very short psalm, but it's a snapshot of the entire history of the abuse of power in a form of a poem or a song. The psalm is one of the strangest uh, psalms as it remains unclear what it, it is exactly depicting. See, it's at least a mythic scene of Elohim showing up in a boardroom, or as it were, a courtroom, presumably in heaven, out in space. He's now presiding over it and sharing this meeting among a council of other Elohim. Okay, who or what are these other Elohim? Now, we don't know for sure. So then the president Elohim, this is God, he levies accusations against the assembly of Elohim for their abuse of power, their neglect of their jurisdictions and territories. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak. Give justice to the orphan. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is God the judge judging the lesser judges. This is Elohim accusing Elohim. Again, could these Elohim be gods, spirits, angels, people? It's ambiguous, and I think it's intentional. Now, finally, we hear the president, Elohim, give the final sentence against the assembly. I said, you are Elohim, children of the Most High. But you shall perish like Adam, like Adam, like mortals. You shall die. Elohim condemns Elohim. It's a bizarre and mysterious scene. And the psalm ends with a prayer for Elohim to do exactly what was just described. Arise, Elohim, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The psalm ends. Now, the psalm served as a liturgical polemic, as it were, through history and Israel's history against the abusers of power, not just in the midst of Israel, but against corrupt Elohim, whether in heaven or in earth. And then it foretells of a future that God will destroy these abusers of power. So at least we glimpse in Psalm 82 how the word Elohim is being used so broadly, as you can see, and so ambiguously to depict this archetypal drama of power among the ranks of Elohim on this grand cosmic scale, things that we can't see for sure. Right, so now fast forward to Jesus' time. This, we're going to get into our third reading, into our gospel reading. And Psalm 82 shows up again in the gospel uh, during this heated debate between Jesus and the religious leaders who confronted earlier Jesus about healing a man born blind, someone without any power or place in society. Now Jesus defends himself. He responds to the leaders and he says, For judgment I have come to the world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Jesus rendering judgment against leaders. Again, Jesus levies accusations against the Pharisees by telling now a parable, a story of the good shepherd. Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he says this, the good shepherd has power to lay down his life. And the good shepherd has power to take it up again. 
Not like bad shepherds who are in it for money or who run away immediately from danger just to save themselves. Do you see what's playing out here in the gospel? This is a mini drama of power playing out in history between the ranks of Elohim, between now Jesus specifically and leaders. Psalm 82 is playing out again in real time in history on Palestine in this specific time and moment. See, Jesus, as it were, he steps up, he assumes his place as presiding Elohim, who confronts the assembly or council of religious leaders, another council of Elohim, and accuses them of their abuse of power, of their neglect of this man born blind, of even sheep that they were supposed to shepherd and protect. As President Elohim, Jesus elevates himself over them, saying that he has authority. Power as supreme Elohim to, of his upcoming show of power by what? By laying down his life as a good shepherd and by taking it up again for his sheep. In his last act of crescendo, Jesus makes this daring claim that he and Elohim are one. So when the Jews grab rocks to lynch Jesus, and then Jesus responds, Whoa! Why will you stone me? The Jews say, you a mere man claim to be Elohim. Now this is where Psalm 82 comes again. Jesus quotes Psalm 82. Is it not written in your law? I said you are Elohim. If he called them Elohim, to whom the word of God came, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming? Because I said I am the son of Elohim. What's Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying? Besides arguing that there's a scriptural warrant for, uh, to call humans Elohim, Jesus is implying that the unbelieving Jews, and their leaders especially, were not living up to their office as Tselem Elohim, to their bearing the image, the shadow of Elohim, to rule and to judge rightly. They were rather abusing their power. Jews and their leaders, rather, they were abusing their place of power as, as it were, chosen people of God, people of Moses. They have the law, they have the promises. They were to show forth the glories of God to all the nations, but they were abusing it. On the other hand, Jesus now is claimed that he is the true son of Elohim, the true Tselem Elohim, the true image, the true representation of God who judges and rules rightly. Now the irony of Jesus quoting Psalm 82 is that the final judgment that we heard against the corrupt Elohim, that fell upon him. On the cross, Jesus perished like Adam, like Adam, like mortals. The son of Elohim died as one who is judged, condemned, and deemed as an abuser of power. See, in the beginning, Elohim displayed his powers by creating, ruling, making distinctions over what he's made. And then on the cross, Elohim displayed his powers again by laying down his life to take it up again by rising from the grave. Jesus did this not so just to model for us what, uh, what being the image of Elohim is, 
Jesus did this so that the image of Elohim in us would be fulfilled in him so that we could be people like Jesus who lay our lives for others, to lay aside our powers for the sake of the powerless, that we may rule and reign without abuse or ego, that we can make distinctions and judge rightly between good and evil, that we may discern the good and perfect will of God in all wisdom and truth. That's what Jesus did for us. Let me sum, him up, sum, it, sum it up this way. In the cross and resurrection, we see Jesus perfectly live out the name Elohim, the powers who gave up his powers for the sake of the powerless. On the cross and resurrection, we see the powers give up his powers for the sake of the powerless. That's it. Elohim in Jesus. How then shall we live into our own Salem, Elohim, our call into bearing and showing the image of God in Jesus? In the 2008 movie Gran Torino, the main character, Walt Kowalski, who is played by Clint Eastwood, he is a retired car factory worker and a recently widowed veteran. He's crabby, he's vulgar, he's unconsciously racist, He's a chain smoker, he's a mild alcoholic, he's emotionally detached from his own family. So you can imagine he's not at all pleasant to be around. Now Kowalski lives in this aging neighborhood in the city of Detroit, it was once home to many white working class families. Now it's racked by gang violence and repopulated by many poor Southeast Asian families. Now through a series of gang-related situations, Kowalski ends up rescuing his next-door neighbor from getting harassed by gang members. This is a young man named Tao. Tao, who is a minor ethnic Chinese from the Hmong people. Now, thereafter, Kowalski grudgingly takes on Tao under his wing, gets him a job, advises him on dating and social life, and eventually they form this surprising, mutually respecting bond, even with Tao's sister and the family. Uh, Kowalski, this... Uh, this war veteran, crabby and vulgar, unconsciously racist, becomes this honorary and peculiar granddad to Tao and his sister. Now the turning point in the movie is when gang members, they intensify harassing Tao and his family. It reached a boiling point when Tao gets wounded by a drive-by shooting and Tao's sister is sexually assaulted by gang members. Tao is enraged as he's recuperating and seeks Kowalski's help to exact immediate revenge. And he hopes to use Kowalski's stash of, of uh, arsenal and his munitions from his wartime. Now, knowing Tao could not be reasoned with at this point, Kowalski confines Tao in his basement, locks him up, and then he goes off on his own to confront the gang members. It's implied in the movie that Kowalski has armed himself to the teeth He's about to unleash his vendetta in the classic Clint Eastwood style in Hollywood. See, as now Kowalski approaches the gang residence, Kowalski yells for the gang members to come out, grabbing the attention of every neighboring resident as they watch from their windows what's about to happen. As the gang members point their guns at Kowalski, Kowalski puts a cigarette in his mouth. He reaches into his jacket pocket 
and quickly pulls out his hand as though pulling out a handgun. And of course, as you can imagine, out of reflex, the gang members all open fire at Kowalski, killing him as his body falls backward in the form of a crucifix. The imagery is unmistakable. And the camera shows in Kowalski's hand is actually a Zippo lighter. Kowalski had no weapon at one him all along. And so the gang members are incriminated. He was unarmed. The police arrive, arrest all of them for murder, corroborated by all the neighbor residents, eyewitnesses. And Kowalski sacrificed his life to ensure that Tao, his sister, his family, and the whole community would be in some ways liberated from the oppression and the abuse of power from these gangs. Kowalski became this most dubious hero in the community. By all accounts, a very selfish, bigoted, uncaring brute of a man. He could have used his power in the conventional way, that is, guns blazing, rage spewing, vengeance exacting, that would have been appropriate in a way in our conventions, right? But slowly, hiddenly, miraculously, his heart turning tender, becoming in him what he was not, giving him new possibilities and choices that he would not have previously have done or even imagined. Instead, Kowalski gave up his power, his privilege, his body for those who had no power, no privilege, in no small way according to the pattern of Jesus Christ, our crucified Lord. As for us, we may not probably not come to a point of sacrificing our lives in dramatic fashion. But we are called in our own station in life, in our own power, to lay that power aside. Lay it down in ways that are ordinary, that are hidden. You won't get credit for it, but God will. That is simple, meaningful to that one person, to that one child, to that one person on the streets. Being inconvenienced, that to, to, be, to embracing the privilege of being inconvenienced and being interrupted, being badgered by those in desperate need of our consolation, of our time, our help, our home, our hospitality or giving up of our wealth without repayment. It's what good parents do, no matter how repetitive, exhausting, and difficult it is for that screaming child. It's what good spouses do for their partners until death parts them. It's what good citizens do in their communities, even though you're not really politically aligned to the leadership or to your riding. It's what good neighbors do especially to those who are strange to you. It's what a good God does to a world that he made, and he has cared for it by his own blood, by laying aside his own power for the powerless. Laying down our powers for the powerless, that, among many other things, is what living out our Tselem Elohim looks like. That is the image of God. That is who Elohim is. That is his name, the God we worship. The God who laid down his powers for us. The God who still gives us power from on high to do and to be as his son. So let's live into that name, Elohim, the powers who gave up his powers 
or the powerless, for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.